Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amen. You may be seated. When I was teaching children in uh, children's ministry, there was a song we used to sing. It was called Father Abraham. Anyone know that song? Most kids know it because you do the hokey pokey in it. But I don't know if you ever realized, but there's a, a truth, a scriptural truth in that song. It says, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. <laughs> right arm. <laughs> you know, that part where it says, I am one of them, and so are you. I don't know if you ever took a moment to really think about that and wonder, well, what does that mean? Because the Jews believed that they were sons and daughters of Father Abraham because they were blood descendants of them, of him. And so then the question remains, well, how am I a child of Abraham when I'm not a Jew? I don't, I don't have Abraham's blood in me, his DNA in me, you might say. So is that song wrong? If you read Galatians 3, 6 through 11, you actually see that that song is right. It actually speaks a, a truth that Paul is trying to make the case that when we are in Christ, when we believe in the gospel, it is by faith alone, through grace alone, that makes us children of Abraham. And it, this so upends the thinking and teaching of the Judaizers that tried to make the point that because of our connectedness, not by faith ultimately, but through our sort of the, these bloodlines to Abraham, that we should continue to keep the law. And Jesus, um, Paul is trying to counter that. And so I'd like to look at how Abraham shows us the gospel in this passage by looking at these two points. First, Abraham proves we are justified by faith alone in verses 6 through 7. And then secondly, Abraham highlights our sonship in Christ alone in verses 7 through 9. So we're going to again look at this first part by looking at how Abraham proves we are justified by faith alone. We read in verses 6 through 7, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, what's interesting to note about this passage that Paul is quoting is that Paul is addressing the law. And when Jews thought of the law, they didn't think of Abraham. They thought of Moses. So you would think that Paul would have quoted Moses, but instead he quotes Abraham. Why does he do that? Because for the Jew... It was Abraham who was the ultimate father of all Jews. And it's almost to say 
to the Jews, the Judaizers, well, if, if Paul is addressing Moses, which is significant, that would make a counter-argument to the Judaizers. But in actuality, Paul is going even further back to Abraham to say, I'm not going to just stop at Moses. I'm going to go all the way to Abraham and make my case. And he begins with, a pro- with this promise. And so to understand what Paul is saying here in verses 6 through 7, we have to go back to that promise in Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise to Abraham. And this is what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is speaking to Abraham in the land of Ur. So he is nowhere near Canaan, and he's giving him a promise The promise is that I'm going to bless you, but you need to go out of this land that you grew up in and go to the land of your forefathers, and you're going to go to Canaan. And then what does Abraham do in light of this promise? We find out in verse 4 of chapter 12, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And that's quite a, a step, right? It's God speaks to him and says, I want you to travel all these many miles to a place you've never been to. And this is not like travel today where you can go online and look up where you're going to and find, you know, go to TripAdvisor and find a hotel and get, you know, do all your research. When God told Abraham to go to this place that was unknown, truly it was unknown. He had no idea where he was going, really. And this is how Hebrews comments about Abraham's decision to, by faith, go. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So, It is faith that pushes him out, and he goes and lives into this promised land. So it's not a land that he sees and says, wow, this is exactly where I want to go. It's based on a promise, a promise yet to be fulfilled, right? And what we know of Abraham's tracking to that place is that he's living in tents with his family. Uh, Some of you enjoy camping. So you think, wow, if we could just get away for a week, it would be great. But if you go for not a week, but maybe a year, living in a tent without restrooms and showers and you know, knowing where the food is going to come from, forget about living in a tent for a year. What about 10 years? What about 30 years? What about, you know, Abraham lived quite a long time. What about 50 years in a tent? with your family. And we have a hard enough time thinking about living in a small apartment, let alone living in a tent. So there's a promise. He has to go far away. He has to go to a place where he knows nothing about, and he's living in a tent for his whole life. Would you do it? You wouldn't do it unless you have faith. 
Faith is the driver, a trust in God leading and directing. Also notice that we don't see anywhere in Genesis where we hear this from God. God is sort of saying to Abraham, Abraham, I've been watching you your whole life, and you've given to the poor. You've been a really good husband and father. You haven't cheated anyone. You've been good to your neighbor. And because all of this that you've done, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. There's none of that at all. There's only God comes and he makes a promise to him and he promises to bless him. That's it. There's nothing that Abraham did that would made him so righteous before God that God was compelled to make a covenant, to make a promise to him. So we only know God speaks. And then there's another promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 15, verses 3 to 6, to Abraham again. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abraham really is God's friend, right? He's talking to him like his friend. And, uh, and then, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So once again, God makes this promise to Abraham. This is in the midst of no sons. And by the way, I think most of you know the story. Abraham, he's around 90 years old. So way, way past childbearing years. And God makes this covenant. God doesn't mention anything about Abraham's behavior, his obedience, his faithfulness, nothing. God just simply decides to bless Abraham. And as chapter 15 shows, moving forward, God puts Abraham to sleep, and then he makes the covenant promise. He cuts the covenant by cutting up these animals in half, and he walks in between them. God does. And, but notice, Abraham's already asleep. So what should have happened is God walks as the sovereign king, and Abraham as the servant king underneath would have walked, and both had said, we agree to this covenant. But God puts him to sleep, and God himself walks. It's to say that God will do all the blessing. He will bear all the curses. He'll bear all the punishments. He does every single part of this covenant. And the rest of the Bible is God showing this promise being fulfilled by him doing all the work, despite Abraham through his descendants and all of their failures and rebellions and idolatries, all of that, they do fail. But God does the work. So I hope you can see why Paul now in Galatians, writing to the Galatians, would use Abraham as an example. Abraham believed, but it was in response to God's action to fulfill the promise that he had made. And Abraham is declared righteous, not on the basis of his own righteousness and all of his good deeds, but solely on the basis of a righteousness that is given sovereignly by God, graciously by God. Now that that just completely flies in the face of the Judaizers who believe that you had to do something. You had to somehow make yourself righteous for God to find you acceptable. And when they saw Abraham, 
They believe he did do something special. But we see here, what Paul is saying is that, no, Abraham did nothing special that made him righteous. God, by his grace alone, decided to bless Abraham. And this isn't even something that's unique to the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. And I've been reading through Ezekiel in my own devotions. And just this week, I was reading through Ezekiel 33. So this is God's providence is that I'm preaching through Galatians 3. And I happen to be in my Bible reading because I'm reading through Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is not a place you would think about Abraham. But in the passage, chapter 33, I read about Abraham. And this is what Ezekiel 33, 23 to 25 says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places. So just FYI is that Ezekiel is writing to the Israelites in Babylon who've already been exiled, the first exile in, in 590. And so he's writing to these exiles and he's saying, the God is saying, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying Abraham was only one man because there's Israelites now still in Jerusalem saying, still not repenting, still not changing until the Bab uh, Babylon comes the second time in 586 and destroys everything. But there are still these people. And so God is saying, you know, there's still these people who despite the fact that their land has been somewhat destroyed, they keep saying Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? Israel, even after being um, first defeated in 590, where a first group of people are taken to Babylon and exiled, they still refuse to repent and to trust in God. I mean, this is the hardness of the hearts of a sinful person, is that even when you're punished and judged, you still raise your fist at God and say, you're no good. Well, God is saying, I'm going to judge them. And the, the reasoning and the rationale of the Israelites is this. Well, God made a promise to Abraham who is righteous. And surely, if he made a promise to one man, he's going to make this promise. And we're many more descendants of Abraham. So if, if it's one person God is going to bless, he's going to bless all these people because we're still many more than one person. And it's just so stark, this idea that they are special. They're Abraham's children. They believe that what made them so special, so chosen, was their blood, their relationship to Abraham, who must have been a special man. And surely because they are descendants of Abraham, they're owed something by God. Surely God must bless them. He is compelled to do so. That's the same mentality that we see in Galatians. It's the same heart. Because they believe they are inheritors of God's promise, they're special. And that's what makes them righteous. Because they in themselves, inherently by their ethnic heritage, are special, they are righteous. And so if you really wanted to plug into that specialness, then you need to obey the law. 
to really understand who Jesus is. That's sort of the Judaizer thinking is we are special. We have this law. If you really want to know Jesus, who also was a Jew, then you need to, yes, obey and follow Christ, but you do that by keeping the law. Now, you might say, okay, I get that, but what does that have to do with me? Well, here's the thing is that that type of thinking and heart is still in our souls. And this is how we are like the Judaizers. I'm going to give you a few ways. First, this idea of entitlement. When you believe you are special inherently because of something you are, whether it's your ethnic heritage, your social status, your intelligence, your hard labors and works, your, your curriculum vitae, your CV, you know, the things that you've done in life, your accomplishments, that sense of entitlement starts sticking in you. People you feel should treat you a certain way. Uh, there's a story that I heard this week from George, actually, in Goma. As it, By the way, thank you all for praying for him. They, he's, he and Eric are leaving Goma, I believe. They already have left back to South Africa. Um, but he was telling the story of how Eric, who is, he's Congolese, um, he's, he's from that area. He, um, he was a teacher and, you know, a high school teacher. And just without going to his whole story, God just really used him. And he took him to a very privileged place and convicted him to go and serve the orphan and the widow. And so he really has given his life to that, even though he could have achieved so much more. Well, what happened is as he's going to different places, people, uh, the different communities and the church leaders, they started calling Eric pastor because he, you know, he uh, is a, he's caring for people. He's shepherding people. And so they started calling him pastor and say, don't call me pastor. And they'd say, no, 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 we're going to call you pastor. And they kept on calling him pastor. But once in a while, someone wouldn't call him pastor. And when that person didn't call him pastor, even though he said he didn't want to be called pastor, he suddenly it started tweaking his heart a little bit, feeling as though, oh, why isn't he calling me pastor? And he described it this way. He said it was like this little worm just crawled into his heart and gave him this sense of entitlement. And suddenly when, that, when someone doesn't give him the respect that he deserves, it started fading away. And when I heard that, I totally understand, actually. It's very interesting, this idea, because I have said to you all, hey, just call me Sam. And whether it's a, a, a kid, a youth, adult, that's fine. I don't, I don't need a title. That's not who I am. And some people just do it. Some people cannot do it. They say, I can't do that, Pastor, or whatever. They, they, it's just, in, and I just say, do what you, what, what's comfortable for you. But there are some who used to call me Pastor and then started calling me Sam. And it's very interesting. The sound of that sounds so different. And it's not necessarily a respect thing per se, but it just sounds different. And suddenly, you feel that worm, the worm of, wait a second, wait a second here. You know, it's, it's, it starts sinking into you, and it truly is a worm. And it, it's, it's a deadly worm. We have this, maybe it's not about titles, 
but maybe it's just in the way that you're treated by people. There's a sense of entitlement. And the Israelites felt that. After they were judged and exiled, they still couldn't shake the idea that they were special in themselves, that it wasn't God who was special, but it's something they are. It's, it's like me saying, I'm special because I'm a pastor. No, my greatest identity is not pastor. It's child of God. And that's why my name is more significant, that God knows me by my name than any title that I would ever have or that you would ever have. You see, the Israelites couldn't realize that before God chose them, they were truly nobodies. They were insignificant. That's the whole message of Deuteronomy. You are insignificant. The only thing that makes you any bit significant has nothing to do with you. It's all about God. And when you turn away from God, you go back to being insignificant again. You're a nobody. So what defines you and me as a Christian is not what church you go to or how much you know the Bible or what school you graduated from, or what career path you're on, or whether you're married or not, how many children you have, whether you have no children. What defines you is Christ. He's your significance. But once we start placing into it something else and saying, well, no, it's my, the degrees I have after my name. It's my career. It's what I do in ministry. All these things that we think make us significant once we start letting that worm sink into our soul, it robs us of our freedoms. And slowly but surely, we start thinking we deserve God's mercy. We deserve respect and honor from people. We've worked hard and we've, we deserve this. And it's so tempting to experience this even in the church. We see it in society where every child gets a participation award for playing soccer even though someone could be just picking grass on the floor and, well, everyone deserves something. Everyone is special. Everyone is entitled to something. Our world causes us to think this way. And once we go down that road, the temptation is there then to sit and to think, okay, maybe it's coming on Sundays and saying, all right, how is everyone going to meet my needs? And we sit there in the back with our hands folded, maybe not in the back, maybe in the middle, arms folded and saying, how are you going to serve me? Now, how's this church going to bless me? I'm thankful that so many of you do serve, serve the body of Christ. But that mentality, that entitlement mentality is exactly the Judaizer heart, the heart that God is trying to break and that Paul is trying to contend against, against the Galatians. So entitlement is definitely the first way in which we act like Judaizers. Secondly is merit. If we really do think that we are entitled to God's favor, then we do something to merit that favor. But th that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. Remember in Matthew 19 when Jesus encounters the rich young man? That person, that man says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's exactly the opposite of how it should be. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And the young man, after Jesus says all these commands, he says, I've kept them all. What do I still lack? And Jesus' point wasn't to say, sell all your possessions, and that's what you'll get. It's he knew his heart was 
hooking on to those possessions. It wasn't the possessions. Like Jesus wasn't saying you have to be an ascetic to actually follow Jesus. But he knows for each one of us, what is that one thing or person that we have hooked our hearts to that says, I refuse to yield. And Jesus will contend to that. So right after that, guess what happens? Peter in Matthew 19, 27, watches between the rich young ruler and Jesus and says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What will, will we have? <laughs> it's so Peter, right? He, he doesn't get it. He's actually doing the same thing. I've, I've left it all. I've done this. What am I going to get out of it? Now, how does Jesus answer Peter and the rich young ruler? He answers by, as he often does, telling a parable. Right after this, in Matthew 20, Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard where the person who has worked the longest feels entitled to the greatest reward. The person who has merited, who has worked hard, who has gone the longest and done the most should get the greatest reward. That's the way that we think, and that's the way that these, this laborer thinks. And like the first work in the vineyard, we want to say, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, Matthew 20, 11 through 12. In that heart, and in all of us really, there's a sense that our works must count for something a bit, our purpose, our identity. And so when we work longer than someone else, harder than someone else, we think, especially in our world, we think we should be paid more. There should be some sort of mutual proportionate reward that matches our labors. We think if we don't get that, doesn't it rob us of our desires, our, our worth, our value, but that's exactly what the gospel is trying to free us of. Our worth is not in our merit, not when it comes to salvation. It is not in, it, it's, it has to be in Christ alone. And when you truly know that you are somebody, not because you succeed or fail, but because of your status as son or daughter. And it's not whether you work the longest or the hardest, but simply because God has shown you mercy. He's been kind to you. Only then can you actually begin to enjoy the gift, to actually experience the joy behind the labors. The reason why we don't feel joy behind labors is because we think we are entitled to more. We're never satisfied with how God blesses us. We only see what we feel like we lack which actually leads to the next way that we're like Judaizers. There's this angst that sort of clouds and corrupts our soul. I want to use the word angst to describe both anger and anxiety together because I think it sort of has that double-sided coin that flows out of our failure to see our righteousness in Christ. When we place our righteousness in ourselves, it always keeps us looking at the successes of others. And we start perhaps being tempted to think, well, I'm better than them. I've worked harder. 
why am I being passed over? It also makes us envious when we miss out on other people's experiences. And we use a word like, you know, FOMO to describe that feeling. But the Bible uses the word covetousness. It's the same thing. And it's, it causes us to believe that because someone else is experiencing some pleasure that we don't get to experience, someone else is having a party and we're not invited to it. And rather than just saying, you know what? Praise God that I'm not invited to every party there is or every gathering or every unique experience that there are opportunities for me as well as for everyone. And the more we can experience the freedom from feeling that type of covetousness, eventually we are freed from that type of anger and anxiety. I can't tell you how often that sense of victimization really entraps us and enslaves us. This sense that because we have been hurt and sometimes grievously wounded by even those around us, that heart of angst, that desire for vengeance and bitterness, it keeps us from ever experiencing the freedom and joy that Christ gives to us through the gospel. And all of this flows from self-effort and self-righteousness. It never frees us. You'll never find a person filled with envy or jealousy or victimization or blame shifting who is also at the same time free and joyous. It just doesn't happen. Those are not two words, characteristics that you would describe someone who's angry or feels victimized, free and joyous. But you can, and I've experienced this, if you go to Africa and meet the people of hands, especially the care workers, all of them, so many of them are either victimized, I mean, in terms of they've been hurt, they've been traumatized, they've gone through deaths and sorrows, and even tremendous evils imposed on them by evil people. And some of those people are the most joyous people I have ever met. Doesn't mean that they don't grieve and mourn and cry and struggle. But in the midst of that, still praising God, yet, as Job says, though you slay me, I will trust you. And I have met people like that. So, and I know people like that here. When we decide, you know what, I'm going to trust the gospel and its freedom power rather than in my own sense of self-effort to gain vengeance and to be able to finally, uh, through my own bitterness and anger, get my vengeance and my justice. Those people are never free, never joyous. The moment you believe the lie that you are special, you are entitled because you are special, apart from Christ, it's the moment you fall into these traps. You are not special because of something you did or some family you've been born into or some race you're a part of, or some nation you're a part of, if you believe you are special because of any of those things, you cannot understand the gospel of Christ. It's a false gospel, really, that Paul says is deadly to us. And this is exactly why he brings Abraham as the example. Abraham is not special because he was a Jew. God called him just sovereignly, from Ur to go and to trust, and Abraham followed by faith. God is the one who is special. 
Abraham trusted that person who is special. What that then leads to is it removes boasting. Paul emphasizes so strongly that when we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, it nullifies our boasting. We don't have to talk about ourselves all the time and be full of ourselves. Paul makes the great argument for justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 3. And then he ends that chapter in Romans 3.27 with these words, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And it's the same in Galatians 3. When you've placed your righteousness not on your own, but you receive it from Christ, well, then you're going to boast about Christ and what he has done and not about yourself. And it's so easy to, it's tempting. It's so tempting to boast about yourself, your family, your family's achievements, all the things that we think make us special when in reality those things do not. There's There's ways to humble boast, humble brag. There are ways to subtly try to get someone to compliment us. We're all perpetrators of that. We've all done that before. When we do not know Christ and everything is about our effort and our merit, boasting is a natural outflow of our hearts. We want to boast about our job. We want to boast about the latest gossip that we know. We want to boast about our, our scores, our college acceptances, the car that we drive. We want everyone to look at it. We want everyone to look at the food. We want everyone to look at our interior designing skills and our DIY skills. And we want to, we want to boast about our spirituality, how much Bible we read, how many Bibles we memorize, how much scripture we memorize, how much we pray, how long we pray, how hard we pray, how loud we pray. We want to boast about where we go on missions or how often we go, how much we give or what. It's the more we do not understand the freedom of the gospel and our trying to gain righteousness by our own power and strength, we will boast and we'll never be satisfied doing it. So we'll boast all the more. But wouldn't it be wonderful instead to hear those words where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear most of all. So we know that Abraham proves we are justified by faith alone through verses 6 through 7. Second, we know that Abraham highlights our sonship in Christ alone in verses 7 through 9. Paul writes, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I mean, it's pretty clear here that Paul is not talking simply about ethnic Jews. Those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Gentiles, by faith, are being justified. So these are words that describe, if you are in Christ, you're not only saved, you're sons and daughters of a promise. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't even matter what you have done in the past. Let's go back to the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 20. Do you know that there are some who are going to be saved in the last hour, according to that parable, in the last minute and second? And what is their payment? The same as the person who worked in the very beginning. Meaning, there are going to be some people who have done terrible things in their life. And they don't deserve salvation. Now, here's the problem with that. The person who was 
done really good things thinks they do deserve salvation. And the reason why they think that is because they look at the person who's done terrible things and say, oh, that person is so bad. Why are they saved? How come they get salvation? If we ever think about a person who has done evil things and we say to ourselves, well, I, I don't think they deserve mercy. I don't think they deserve forgiveness. I don't think they deserve grace. That actually says we think we do deserve grace. If there's anyone in our church, whoever walks through these doors, and in our heart, we say, that person has done something so terrible that, no, I don't want to show them grace. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be compassionate. I don't want to be merciful. This, think about this. It says in verses, uh, chapter 20, Matthew 20, 15 through 16, Jesus ends the parable by saying, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The person who begrudges Jesus' generosity of grace is in grave danger because it means they don't understand grace at all. It's not just that this person is saved and is sort of having a hard time. What Jesus is doing is he's calling to question whether this person actually is following and knowing him. And Jesus says, literally in verse 15, he actually uses the word, are you, the word begrudge is the word evil eye. It's like a stink eye. Are you, like when you're looking at this person and saying, oh, you don't deserve to be shown grace. That, Jesus says you're giving that person an evil eye. There's an evil in your heart that is shining forth when you actually judge someone and say you don't deserve grace. Be forewarned. There is not a man or woman or child in our church, in our world, that is beyond the gospel of grace. So long as they're living, even in the last second, they could turn. Even if they killed millions of people, God could sovereignly choose to save, even if they were the worst of people. And if I am thinking in my mind, how can you do that? You're not just. You're not good. First of all, it shows that I don't understand grace. Second of all, it places me into grave danger that I actually not only do not understand it, maybe I am not even someone who's been saved by grace myself. And that's why I can't show grace to someone who has been saved in such a way. Oh, what a terrible place to be. And Paul is saying, if you have a Judaizer heart, that is what you look like. Everything is about externals and what someone has done. And there's an evaluation of one person deserves grace and the other person doesn't based solely on, it could be ethnic heritage, but it could also be what a person has done in the past. What Paul is saying is, if you are in Christ by faith, the only thing that makes you a child of God is faith alone through grace alone. That's it, the righteousness of Christ. From that point forward, we're in Christ together. It's not that it's going to be easy. Sometimes people are going to be difficult. But we're still a family. Even when someone is having a hard time, we're still a family. You know, this past year, it's been such a great reminder of this. I mean, it's, think of it this way. It was even hard to even just simply gather together to worship. 
And remember a year ago, how when in March um, 22nd, it was our first worship at my house where it was just me and my family. And there, everything was a mystery. COVID was a mystery. There was so much fear all around. And there was just this sense of what is happening to our world. And then this whole year, 2020, think about all the things that happened. It is a great reminder of even our gathering is not what causes us to have our righteousness in Christ. It's Christ alone. Christ alone. That's grace. So I um, we put together this it's a video. It's a video for of a reminder of this past year. I hope it just, more than anything, it shows you where we've come. And it makes us long for the day that we gather together soon. And we come together celebrating, not our gathering, actually, but we come together to celebrate Jesus. Because he's the one who makes our gathering special. Our gathering apart from Christ is a waste of time. But when we are in Christ together, and it, and it shows, even if we're not physically gathering together, we can still be in Christ together. And I do believe this year showed us that. So let's watch this together, and I'll come back and pray for us, and we'll, we'll close with a song. Let's pray together. Father, you are good for everything that you have provided, most of all. We are so thankful for your son, Jesus. He makes all things well. Thank you for gathering us through this past year. Um, though we have been physically apart from each other, we know that in Christ we are still brothers and sisters. So thankful for the church, for all who labored, not because of righteous reasons within themselves, but mostly so that we can shine forth the light of Christ. And so, Father, I, I pray that as we come together, um, as we remember and reflect on this year, I long for the time that we are here together. But thank you for being with us, even through dark valleys. Thank you that you've shown yourself to be faithful and true. And for those who are watching, May they remember and may they know with all their heart that you have not abandoned them, that you are with them. So we do sing together, you are so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.